And welcome to the podcast of Tech EU. This is our episode number 144, recorded on November 26, 2019. Today we will talk about Uber's license, or rather lack thereof, in London, European tech in the valley of death, the world of home delivery, Shoshana Zubov, and much more. We will also run a conversation with Thomas Kangwillem, partner and uh, head of international growth at Ecotree. I am your host, Andrew Degler, joined today by our research lead, Natalie Novik. Hey, Natalie, how was your post-conference syndrome? Uh, pretty good, doing really well, and great to see you again, Andre. Uh, it was a great pleasure uh, working uh, side by side with you at Slush. I think we did uh, pretty well. Yeah, and I hope you all are enjoying the interviews we did at Slush. The first ones are already out, and the rest of them will be coming to your podcast feed in the next few weeks. We have recorded a lot of uh, conversations and I have listened to most of them by now and I think uh, they're really nice. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this uh, with uh, the audience. So do let us know what you think and if there's an event that we should be podcasting at next. Absolutely. Now, let us get to the stories of the week. And uh, today, I'm sorry, but I'm going to uh, cheat a tiny little bit again. I'm going to talk about a story that is happening this week and not last week. But I think technically it's all right. So it's Uber. Uber has failed to get a long-term operating license in London, and the reason cited by Transport for London could actually lead to more problems for the company. So according to TfL, a security failure in the app allows for unauthorized drivers to work on the platform. And it turns out that this security breach is actually being used quite widely. So let's start from the beginning to understand what's actually happened on Monday. And to do that, we will first have to go back two years to September 2017. And that was the last time when Uber actually was in possession of a long-term operational license in London. Back then, in 2017, Uber applied for an extension, but TfL declined the request, citing security reasons. Then, nine months later, in June 2018, Uber actually managed to get a license, but it was a 15-month provisional one, and that license expired two months ago in September, and Uber hoped, again, that it would get a full five-year license afterwards. But that didn't happen, and TfL only gave it a two-month temporary reprieve. And these two months ended on Monday. But this time, TfL refused to give Uber any extension at all, effectively banning the company from the British capital. As it usually happens, though, Uber plans to appeal the decision, which will effectively postpone the ban. So theoretically, with all this uh, uh, appeal process, Uber could still reverse the decision of uh, TfL. But for some reason, I'm quite certain that it won't happen. And here is why. So the key issue that TfL based its decision on is the change in Uber's platform that allegedly allowed drivers to upload new photos to their accounts. But what it actually means in practice is that one account could be and has been used by multiple drivers, most of whom obviously were not authorized or checked by Uber. So it's pretty simple. One driver gets authorized and checked, and then other drivers can just upload their photos when they're working under that account. And that, of course, goes against all sort of uh, security and safety policies of Uber and Transport for London. 
So here's a quote from the statement that uh, TFL issued on Monday. This allowed them to pick up passengers as though they were the booked driver, which occurred in at least 14,000 trips, putting passenger safety and security at risk. This means all the journeys were uninsured and some passenger journeys took place with unlicensed drivers, one of which had previously had their license revoked by TFL. The quote ends. 14,000 trips is a lot. It's a lot even for London, really, uh, which is a major market for Uber. And the company said earlier that it had 3.5 million users in the city and 45,000 registered drivers. TfL also mentioned uh, that, in its opinion, Uber did not do enough to address another issue, that is to prevent dismissed or suspended drivers from creating new accounts and working on the platform again. So in response, Jamie Haywood, Uber's regional general manager for Northern and Eastern Europe, said the following. The quote begins. Over the last two months, we have audited every driver in London and further strengthened our processes. We have robust systems and checks in place to confirm the identity of drivers and will soon be introducing a new facial matching process, which we believe is a first in London taxi and private hire. The quote ends. So what it comes down to for now is that Uber will appeal the decision and it will be operating in London still while this process is underway, which could be a while. I think it could take months or whatever. Uh, but during that time, it will have to prove to a magistrate that it has done enough to fix the issues from the photo swapping all the way to preventing uh, dismissed uh, drivers to create new accounts. Uh, the issue with photo swapping, however, it just sounds absolutely massive, and I'm wondering whether it is limited to the UK, which I totally don't see any reason for. So, if more cities will now look closer at this glaring security fiasco, Uber is facing a much bigger problem than just losing the license in London. As our friend Martin S.F.P. Bryant wrote in his newsletter Big Revolution, and I quote, at the very least, it's a PR crisis. In recent months, the company has introduced new safety features and bought advertising, explaining how safe it is to use as it looks to distance its image from the reckless Travis Kalanick era. TFL's allegation flies in the face of all that work. The quote ends. So, Natalie, I'm, I know you're not a fan of Uber, but still, like, what's your take on this? What do you think will happen? Yeah, so, I, I mean, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you'll know that I have a number of issues with Uber, but I still use it primarily because the safety issue. I feel comfortable as a single person traveling by myself often to use Uber over using a local taxi hire. I've used Uber in, in over three different continents, different countries, different different areas, and I've always felt pretty safe using it. So this is a real challenge. Um, and it's I think it's also a very egregious safety problem um, that TFL has identified here, especially because Uber has really, in the last few weeks, it's very noticeable how they've been trying to really highlight their safety concerns as being their real unique value for passengers. So um, I'm really appreciative that TFL has, has identified the problem, but it seems like, unfortunately, Uber really won't feel much of a sting from this, especially if they have new processes that are in development in London and in el elsewhere. Well, I mean, it, it seems like the market uh, of London is really is really important for Uber. So, I mean, I think it's a good thing that they will step up their security processes. The question is, how do we make sure that uh, these uh, new and improved security processes uh, are also applied, not just in London, but elsewhere? 
And it, it kind of makes you think about ride sharing across multiple different platforms is that we've really operated um, up until this point, I think, with a lot of trust in that the driver that says is on the app is the driver that's going to be picking you up. And really, that could have been anyone. And we've really kind of put our trust in these platforms without having a whole lot of opportunity to to verify the identity and the safety and all these different things. We've just kind of taken that for granted. I think it's a big wake up call for a lot of us, actually. Certainly. But I have to say, though, I never try to, let's say, look in the face of the driver to see whether it's the same face as I see in the app. I always only look at the license plate. But I guess after uh, after this scandal, I might actually, just out of curiosity, if not anything else, uh, try to see whether the drivers are the actual people who are supposed to be there according to the app. Yeah, and I agree with you that it really could be, this problem could doesn't have to be isolated to London. Um, and I, I think it is something for all of us to, to really um, also use our role as consumers we have we have a role to play here as well and really kind of demanding answers um to ensure that this is something that no longer continues yeah absolutely now natalie you want to talk about the valley of death what is it (laughs) yeah so this is a really provocative title and it really comes um from some comments that were made at the slush conference so of course, I, we just got back last week and I'm still picking through things that have come out to the event because there's so many different things that were announced and uh, lots of different launches and so much in there. But I think one of the most exciting things to come out of the conference was there was an interview with the European Commission's Director General for Research and Innovation, uh, Jean-Paul Paquet. I totally didn't say that Jean-Eric. properly. Okay, we, so this guy, he has announced that the European Innovation Council will be instituting a 3.5 billion euro fund for early stage tech to help European innovations get over the quote, what he calls the, the famous innovation valley of death, end quote. So this fund is going to be working to provide equity and grant funding to deep tech startups, specifically those that are in manufacturing, biotechnology, health tech, and artificial intelligence. So in his stage conversation at Slush, he said, quote, we are hoping to make a big, big impact with this European Innovation Council. We are emulating indeed to an extent the positive features of traditional VCs, end quote. So I find this comment pretty interesting and also a bit promising because as we know, VCs in Europe and as someone that has personally looked at hundreds and hundreds of deals uh, for European startups over the last years, we see that VCs tend to shy away from a lot of deep tech investments. It's not really their sweet spot, especially because they're trying to avoid things like supply chain risk um, and supporting industries where this uncertainty is a bit more known. So hopefully this EU-fronted fund will be able to help bridge this gap. So what he announced, the new fund will officially launch in 2021. And the final size will depend on commitments from member states. But he has this expectation that it will be quite a significant fund. So this announcement comes as an existing European Innovation Council pilot project begins to bear fruit. So as we mentioned on the podcast previously, Over the summer, the EIC 
began to test the waters with an early version of this combined grant and equity program. Um, they started with a 600 million euro pool of capital that was designed to kind of evaluate how your uh, European entrepreneurs and innovators would respond to this new initiative. So things seem to have gone well, and they were designed to support startups that fit in the following three criteria. And I'll quote from them directly that these startups are radically different from existing products, services, or business models. They are highly risky and they have the potential to scale up internationally. So this pilot uh, is ongoing. That was a lot that launched this summer. It will run until 2020, by which then the newly announced 3.5 billion euro fund would then take its place. So what that means for startups is that in the next year, there's over a billion euros of funding for the pilot that's still yet to be deployed. And I think it's kind of a big tease to announce this new um, extension of the program at the Slush event, especially because there are still a number of things to be worked out in terms of equity, how the startups are evaluated, and importantly, who will be evaluating the startups that get funding. But I think it's significant that it was that they use the event to announce this new fund, because I think across Europe, there still remains an incredible unevenness when it comes to how much startups even know that this EU funding is available. So this is one of the reasons also why I'm mentioning this in the podcast. And I hope in terms of the fund's behavior, it will work more like a traditional VC rather than how the EU has traditionally been doing SME funding and innovation financing as of late. But I'm hedging my bets because to be a significant alternative to traditional VC, especially in light of more American VC attention in Europe, something we mentioned last week, the EU will need to move quickly, something that it doesn't do particularly well. And because more and more startups that I'm talking to are telling me they're looking for alternatives to EU funding. So I spend most of my time going to events and talking with early stage startups all across the continent. And what I've been learning from founders is that for many projects, such as the Horizon 2020 and for the EIC, the criteria in the application process are too arduous and the evaluation too opaque to make the time and effort put into the application worth it, because by doing so would significantly slow down aspects of their businesses. So these are anecdotal accounts, but the companies I've been speaking to that have had successful applications have had to hire on a number of professionals to help them with aspects of the application, specific grant writers, etc., which I don't think was something that the EU necessarily intended when they designed the programs. And we've seen how the distribution of funding across countries looks like in terms of who actually gets funded, which, to be frank, is quite uneven. So I'm going to remain skeptical on this new fund until we learn more details. And this kind of gets me to my final point as to transparency and how things can be done better. On November 11th, the last round of successful companies to the SME instrument phase one were announced. The program ended up supporting 287 companies from 31 countries. As with some other rounds of the SME instrument, Spain was the country with the most successful applications, 48 successful projects out of the total. 
This might not be surprising to anyone if you look at the data for the EIC accelerator. Spain has been the most successful country when it comes to receiving funding for its project from the SME instrument since its inception, nearly 350 million euros in total since the program's beginning. And when you compare countries, the next largest amount goes to France, which has received a bit under 200 million euros in total. The thing is, we don't know the relative numbers of those applying for this funding. So are Spain's high numbers a result of greater applications or just more overall success? What is the likelihood of a successful grant application between countries? I hope, as especially as this EIC fund grows, European citizens have greater transparency when it comes to, to who actually is getting the funding and what it takes to apply for it. Knowing the answers to these questions will go a long way in terms of encouraging startups to apply and helping them know that they're not wasting their time with the application. And this transparency, that's something that really should differentiate EU funding from anything that a, quote, traditional VC, unquote, does. Anything that EU funds, they should and they must be accountable to and must be transparent to the European taxpayer. I'm not talking about the returns on these funds. I'm simply talking about who gets the funding and how that is evaluated. Currently, the data transparency around who gets European funding and the descriptive statistics on that could be very much improved. This is the same for EIB funding as well, something we've also talked about in this podcast. Data is my thing, and I have a lot of familiarity with it, especially in terms of who gets EU funding. So if I'm having some difficulties, the current concerns I'm hearing from startups are certainly more than justified. So while there's a lot of excitement around this new fund, and it's, I think it's really wonderful they've announced it, and despite the challenges, I think everyone should know about the funding available from the EU. But I can understand why the announcement might be making some in the European tech ecosystem somewhat underwhelmed until there's some more information. Yeah, I do hope that after this uh, last round of uh, SME instrument, maybe they will release uh, some more numbers. That would be great. But when you're saying that it would be great to have the fund work more like a traditional VC, do you actually envision the future in which an entrepreneur can come to the EU and just show the normal pitch deck and then get funded? (laughs) Well, that's kind of what they're suggesting it will be. And now, especially we see the EIB working in that way, directing investments to startups directly directly, I think we might be seeing that kind of in a faster turnaround process. So these are kind of the things that I think might be what they're talking about. But of course, it's quite a big tease to just announce 3.5 billion euros. That's really exciting. But what does that actually mean? And if we have really great uh, people behind the fund that are evaluating the startups and that they can move quickly, that could be a real game changer for European tech but still a lot a lot of unknowns there. Yeah, that's a lot of money to be distributed. But do you think that they will get, I don't know, VCs in residence in a way? So people with VC background who can help with evaluation and who can have certain angle uh, to look at it that is different from the EU people, say. So when this pilot project was announced, there were several calls over the last year for experts, for different stakeholders with experience in scaling international companies to come forward and put themselves, um, um, to nominate themselves to be part of the panels that would evaluate the companies. Um, they hired a board of people that would help um, with the distribu- distribution of the pilot 
um, project. But I haven't seen who actually got on um, the board and the details online are, are not very clear who is actually evaluating the companies. And I think that's one of the real sticking points is that mm-hmm. who actually is uh, evaluating who gets the money or not. And that I think really depends on how you write your application, how you position it, um, a number of different things. So I think that's an, one example where transparency could be a lot better. And if you kind of click uh, through their site and you click on the part of who is on the advisory board, it just sends you to a link of that announced the call. But I know the call was many months ago and they've already selected some of the people. I have a hunch about some of those, who those people might be based on what I've seen on Twitter, but nothing really um, particularly formal about that. Um, and that's something I think that could be done a bit better. Do you think that actual successful experienced VCs would be even interested in joining this? That's my main issue. For you know, them. I think uh, I think that's a real fair point and a, a good question. And I'm not sure, but I do know that you have VCs that are invested in the European tech community that want European commission projects to be to work better to be more effective and ultimately uh, you, if you had in the future something where you had follow-on investments from VCs onto European projects that would be a real indicator that this ecosystem is working in a sustainable way and I'm not seeing a lot of that action happening yet but wouldn't it be really great if you could have the EU and a VC firm kind of co-signing on to investments for startups that would be a really great sign. Um, and I think maybe there is a call from VCs that that would support such initiative. It's a lot of money and it should be deployed in the right way, in the most effective way, especially if we're having these conversations about how Europe can be more dynamic and more competitive in light of all these different things that, I mean, we see these hit pieces all the time about how things aren't working as well as they should. And if you actually had the European investment community working with a supranational institution, working together to identify and support the most promising startups across the continent. Wow, what a game changer that would be. Um, but currently, they're really working in two different worlds um, from yeah, what exactly. I've been seeing in my experience. Speaking of you, how about yourself? Did you uh, did you apply? Did you want to get in? Were you invited? You know, I did see the application. And uh, for a number of reasons, I didn't fit the criteria. Um, I have not scaled an international company before. I don't speak two European languages with fluency. I'm not a European citizen. Um, lots of different reasons why I wouldn't have, have been able um, to join. But there's so many great people in this ecosystem that you could imagine be an amazing candidate. Um, but I'm not sure um, who was successful um, at joining. Right. I hope we will figure it out soon. Let's just uh, try and keep an eye on it. And we do keep promising to keep eye on things, I know, on this show. But in general, we actually do. And if we don't mention it every time, it doesn't mean that uh, we are not doing it. And uh, there will be updates uh, coming up in the following episodes for sure uh, for the things that we have been looking at. 
Now, let's move on towards the interview of uh, this episode. And this is a conversation with uh, Thomas uh, Conguilhem, uh, the partner and head of international growth at Ecotree. This interview is part of a series of three conversations with uh, French startups recorded at Slush 2019. This series is kindly sponsored by La French Tech, the brand that represents the French startup ecosystem and all those in it from bioscience to online marketplaces, wherever in the world they come from. So let's listen to the interview and we'll be back in a few minutes with our recommendations tell me first of all so what uh, what is it what is uh, what is echo tree what is it you're doing well echo tree we are a completely new way to uh, actually invest in tree planting mm -hmm. um, tree planting is one of the most uh, simple and efficient way to actually fight against uh, climate change and preserve the, the planet's biodiversity um, so we've made tree planting not just a, a green Uh, feel good action. Uh, we've made it a, an actual real investment. Uh, so anyone on our eco tree at green on our website, anyone, both firms or individuals can, uh, in a few clicks and for as low as 15 euros, buy a tree, a newly planted tree from a forest and both, uh, compensate their CO2 footprint all while making money at the same time because as a tree owner, you're going to get 100% of the proceeds of the revenue when the tree uh, will be cut in like 30, 40 years. Right. You mentioned uh, that uh, this is a way to sort of offset your uh, carbon footprint. So how many trees does an average person need to plant uh, to get like fully uh, offset? Well, it really depends. Uh, in, first of all, in which country you're living. Mm -hmm. um, typically Denmark, for example, is, even though it's seen as one of the most green country in the world, and it actually is, they still have a very high footprint. It's around 17 tons per head right. um, on a yearly basis. So, uh, But it goes down to five or eight uh, ton per year per person, depending on which country. And we like to say that our trees, in the way we actually maintain them, um, they kind of upset uh, along the whole lifetime around 600 kilo of CO2. Uh, it's like 30 kilo per year over 20 years. Right. But we have to remember that while we pollute today, the trees, they need uh, years and decades to compensate that. So it's certainly not a, a wild card to pollute even more, but still it's just a good way to try to clean a mess uh, we leave behind. For sure. Right. And uh, so you said that the investor gets 100% of the proceeds. So what, what is your business model then? Where, where do you get the money from? Yeah, well, the, the model is based on a, on a legal uh, specificity, um, an old one that we've just made actual again, mm -hmm. which makes it a, a distinction between the land property and the so-called surface property. So we actually equity buy forest or land and we own the land, mm -hmm. but we manage to sell the, the trees as a surface item, uh, a, a good, like uh, you could sell a chair or a car basically. So that distinction allows us to make you the owner of the tree. So we take a cut, uh, have a gross margin on, on the sale of the trees. Um, if we take like a 15 euro tree, we get around 40% of that as mm -hmm. our gross margin, so to speak. But then you become the owner of the tree. Um, even though we still own the land, you become the owner of the tree. So whenever the tree is harvested and cut, you get as the owner 100% of the, of the proceeds of the revenue from that sale. Right. This is interesting. And uh, what sort of return on investment should an investor uh, expect? Well, it, it, um, we're very confident to say that it's around 2% a year. Right. Uh, over 40 years. So ask your banker, but that's not so bad these days. <laughs> um, and it's, um, it's based actually on the natural growth of the tree, right. uh, which grow typically between two and four percent 
a year. It's not fully linear, but if we make it, if we make an average, that's where it stands. So it's a very simple, solid, and 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 uh, and definitely sustainable way to to actually green a, a, a build a green asset mm-hmm. over the long run. Interesting. And how long does it take for a, uh, for an average tree from being planted to being cut? It depends on the on the species, and we definitely have different species because we try to really maintain a biodiverse uh, forest. So actually, on the website, you can choose the location of your tree, you can choose the the, the type, and you can also choose uh, the age, so to speak. Some most of them are newly planted, mm-hmm. um, some of them are young trees, but you definitely have to count between I would say 25 to 50 years on average and if you take a good sessile oak you can uh, the, the return is going to be in, in 90 years so definitely it's not necessarily something people will see as their own investment but for the next generation and uh, we have a lot of our actually private clients using this as a, as a, as a meaningful gift for their children or grandchildren right. to pass it over to the next generation. And uh, how big is the company right now? Well, today we are, we're growing quickly. Um, we are going to hit the two million dollar, uh, or two million euros actually, um, turnover this year. Mm-hmm. So we keep on our 100% growth, uh, per year track. Um, we've been founded in 2016. So we're three years old. Uh, we're now 30 people, mainly in Paris, and we open a new international office uh, in Copenhagen. Um, and we had a, seed capital financial round in 2017 for 1.2 million euro and we just uh, settled in september this year uh, a 3 million euro uh, serie a so right. well funded we have a fantastic staff uh, um, and we are yeah on a solid growth path and you need the money to buy the land Partly, but not only, uh, and also to expand internationally and, and like muscle up uh, our, our business development uh, resources. Right. So right now you operate in uh, French forests. <clears throat> Absolutely. That's where we started. We have today around 18 uh, forest areas in uh, in France, but we're definitely aiming to uh, to actually plant trees and forest uh, all over Europe. Right. Um, and we see how we can du- legally and technically duplicate that model. Uh, we are looking into Denmark, UK, uh, Germany. So for sure, there will be many opportunities there too, because we realize that it's important and it's part of the of the whole value proposition that your tree is, is local, um, it's, it's close to you in Europe. It's not in Africa or in South right. uh, South America, even though it makes sense over there as well. But somehow people relate even more when it's next to them. So we really want to offer that to all our European uh, potential clients. So do you have to roll out sort of country by country? Um, yes, well, because we need to check if whether that legal model, I explained this distinction between the land ownership and the surface ownership, whether that works in, uh, in each country, right, in, in Europe right. at least. And same also need to see how the, how expensive the land might be in the, in each different country. So there are a lot of things to address, of course, before we fully duplicate the model into a new country, but we are, have high ambitions with this regard. Right. So how about yourself? Uh, do you have like forestry background to how did this all come to you? <clears throat> Not myself, actually. I have a fairly international and, and entrepreneurial background, which, uh, I'm French initially, mm-hmm. uh, but half French, half Austrian. I'm married to a Danish, uh, a lady. So I'm pretty European, uh, <laughs> case. Um, and had some, yeah, an international background, uh, that brought me to Hong Kong or to Switzerland. Um, but, uh, two of the four uh, co-founders of Equitree mm-hmm. are actually, uh, from the forestry, uh, domain. Right. And I've joined the, uh, earlier this year as uh, the fifth uh, kid on that new kid on the block but the new kid on the woods <laughs> nice this is really interesting and uh, so what's the 
how to say, what's the competition like? Are there any other companies that do similar thing? Because I, I think I have heard about a, a, a bunch, but they're mostly sort of like CSR kind of plays. Yeah, well, we were lucky enough to have uh, not really have any direct competition. Mm -hmm. I mean, with our model where you both uh, compensate your, your CO2 emissions and Uh, build a green asset and then make money at the same time. We have, our main competition is indirect in the sense that there is a lot of tree planting, uh, projects and organizations mm -hmm. and, and uh, foundations, but they're all mainly based on, on philanthropic model, which is good as well, of course. Um, but it's not good enough in the sense that we realize that you need this, uh, financial incentive. We need to reward sustainable behaviors, environmental friendly behaviors, if we really want everybody to do it. Um, so it's good with these philanthropic models, but uh, we're very happy. And so far, we're the first ones actually to be, uh, to both offer that uh, green action and the return on investment in it. So is it mostly individuals who uh, buy trees or is it uh, companies, uh, enterprises? Actually both, uh, definitely. And today we, uh, uh, I would say 50% as a way on a 50-50% uh, on, on, mm -hmm. on our turnover, both B2C, so individuals and B2B companies. We have around 20,000 individuals, clients, and uh, close to 400 uh, companies. And how many trees would an uh, average investor buy in one go? Well, it depends. We, uh, again, we're not necessarily targeting the big ones, because mm -hmm. um, we believe the, this, our model fits super well for, for also smaller or medium sized company. So typically it goes from 500 trees up to 10,000 trees. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. It really depends on, uh, on, of course, budget, but also the, the impact that our clients actually want to do. So what would be the main challenges then? Because it, 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 like, it, it sounds very rosy. We have, I would say, um, that's a kind of the, the good problem uh, type of, of challenge, but we are, we are looking for definitely more land, mm -hmm. uh, more trees, because if we want to cope with our current uh, commercial traction, um, it's important that we can secure uh, that we have sufficient trees and sufficient land where we can plant new trees. So definitely if, if you are, if our audience, within our audience, there is uh, some uh, tree owners or forest owners or landowners in, in France or in Europe, they're very welcome to reach out. So let's say Coping with that uh, traction uh, with our stock, so to speak, is, is one of the, it's going to be going to be one of our next challenges. And then we are, we're also thinking in making our, our products, our trees, maybe a bit more financial. Um, today it's, it's a very long-term investment, as we said. Of course. Um, and some companies or even some individuals are asking to see whether we could make it more liquid in mm -hmm. a financial term, uh, which means that whether it would be easy to sell it before the term for whatever reason, um, that you could Basically, uh, the, uh, whether we could organize a second hand, so to speak, market, uh, of trees. Mm -hmm. uh, why not? I mean, if, if that could help people to engage even more, uh, because they would have some liquidity of so, uh, some shorter exit possibilities, then why not? So this is also definitely a, a, a field we are looking into. Right. Now, this is, uh, this is, this is quite interesting. And, uh, how, uh, much land do you own right now? Like, and how many trees uh, do you have? Well, we have around 600 uh, hectares and, uh, around 600,000 trees. Um, but again, uh, the potential is, is tremendous. And I guess we never plant enough trees anyway. So, uh, not sky is the limit, but the, the earth is the limit, I would say. <laughs> True. And, uh, uh, and you're focusing on the European market at the moment. Yeah. Uh, again, somehow we believe that, um, it helps to people 
You know, we believe there's a big gap between awareness and action. And we talk about sustainability a lot. And sometimes we, we believe we don't achieve so, so, so much. So in order to engage people, yeah, we need to make it uh, as close as, in, as impactful as possible. And having the trees almost like next door, uh, we realize this is really has a strong, uh, has a strong effect on, on the people's engagement. It makes right. it local. So somehow it makes it uh, more impactful. Right. Is it actually possible for the person who has bought a tree to come and take a look at the tree they bought? Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, we do have uh, quite some both firms and, and, and individuals that actually go and see with their tree right. and hug it or do whatever they want with. Um, because on your, when you when you buy or, uh, when you buy a tree um, or take a tree on a subscription, we also have actually a subscription model where you just define how many trees you want to <laughs> add to your portfolio every month, right. and then we automatically allocate new trees on your account. So whatever model you're on, um, you can see them on your account online. Uh, you see where they are located, so they're ge they are geolocalized. Mm -hmm. You can see the, the financial value growth and their CO2 compensation growth as well. So definitely, you know where they are. They exist. <laughs> they're, 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 they're there, and you're very welcome to visit them. And how does the how does the actual like planting work? Do you actually employ people who uh, look after this forest uh, and uh, plant the trees? Yeah, absolutely. It's part of our core values uh, and of course core resources. We, we like to remind that actually that within the four co-founders, uh, two of them are, are forestry experts. Right. So we're like really forest guys that turned that into a, a startup and a business and not just uh, IT geeks uh, who had a, a brain idea and, and just uh, doing business with the forest. So that's where we initially come from and we still have uh, a great deal of our resources in Bretagne, in Bourgogne, in uh, Limousin where we are in this region in France where we have uh, our, our forest and so um, that's what we do. And because when you buy a tree from us we you technically give us a mandate to take care of it right. on the on the very long run. So it's absolutely... Uh, critical that we have the internal resources to handle that and we are we have two watchdogs on our shoulders um the IMF which is the French Autorité des Marchés Financiers the French Financial Authority mm -hmm. on one end and they secure that it's a valid model uh, financially seen um and then we have also forestry independent forestry experts that uh so first validate each forestry plan we have mm -hmm. for each of our forest and then that then uh, that audit every year uh, what it is we're doing on the ground so We are very strictly controlled and that's a very good thing. <laughs> right. Great. This is very interesting. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Thomas. Uh, thanks for taking the time to talk and uh, good luck with Echo Tree. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Hello, welcome back to the podcast of TechEU, episode number 144. It is time for the recommendation part. And my recommendation today is a read that is as long as it is interesting, I promise. It's titled How Our Home Delivery Habit Reshaped the World, and the name pretty much describes what it's all about. So the feature, which was run on The Guardian, uh, touches many different aspects of how our preference to have stuff delivered to our doorstep has changed the world around us and in many cases put a lot of pressure on the infrastructure and the environment. So, for example, it's an interesting fact that I didn't know, really. So Amazon's overall carbon footprint, which is equivalent to 44.4 tons of carbon dioxide, is higher than that of Denmark. And of course, delivery vans create a lot of congestion and uh, occupy the curbs in our cities. And it's uh, particularly a huge problem in London and uh, other densely populated areas. So this is just yet another tectonic shift in how we live that's been brought around by technology. And in this case, e-commerce. And I will finish this recommendation with a quote from the piece, which goes like this. 
for thousands of years, human progress was indexed to the ease and speed of our mobility. Our capacity to walk on two legs and then to ride on animals, sail on boats, chug across the land and fly through the air, all to procure for ourselves the food and materials we wanted. In barely two decades, that model has been turned inside out. Progress today consists of having our food and materials wink their way to each of us individually. It is indexed to our immobility. The quote ends. I really like the piece. I hope you do too. I will leave the link in the show notes. I think it's a really, it's a really nice one. And also, Natalie, it kind of uh, uh, chimes uh, along what you often talk about uh, uh, in the podcast. And uh, also with your recommendation, I suppose. Yeah, and I I would really reiterate, I think that's a great recommendation, Andre. Uh, a really good piece, and everyone should have a look at it. Um, but this week, I wanted to recognize Soshana Zuhoff, who is the Emeritus Harvard professor, scholar, and author of The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, um, a book that was launched this year. And she was recently awarded the Axel Springer Award in Berlin. The Age of Surveillance Capitalism was published in January to great acclaim and goes into detail on some of the changes to society that have taken place thanks to this digital future. And Andre, of course, in your piece just now, you've touched on some of those in your recommendation. Professor Zubhoff has spent her life studying the impact of technology on humankind and over 30 years ago wrote one of the most significant texts on computing. Uh, this was called The Age of the Smart Machine. And she was recently recognized in Berlin at an awards ceremony for Axel Springer. And she was announced on stage by none other than the European Commission President-elect, Dr. Ursula von der Leyen. And Dr. Leyen um, had, took a speech on Professor Zubhoff's accomplishments and also illustrated her own approach to tech and its future in Europe. In the speech, von der Leyen touches again on sovereignty and the need for developing European solutions to technical problems, especially when it comes to AI and 5G. Andre, you're heading to the 5G conference um, tomorrow, so I really look forward to seeing what you have um, in store. And we see from the president-elect's words that her positions are becoming more and more clear in every appearance, especially when it comes to tech. So I wanted to recommend that speech. I think it's really enlightening, but also a great conversation that Professor Zubhoff had with Mart Matthias Doffner, the CEO of Axel Springer, just after the awards. The conversation is very compelling because previous winners of the Axel Springer Awards were Mark Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos, two figures that Zubhoff discussed at length in this groundbreaking book. And the conversation goes in depth on surveillance capitalism and what it will take to address this new age and if Europe is doing enough. And this is quite enlightening, but if you haven't had a chance to read Dr. Zubhoff's book, uh, President-elect von der Leyen definitely has, um, but I can understand if you haven't got a chance yet, it's over 700 pages, but the conversation should give you enough of a taste to dig right into it. And since the holiday season is coming up, if you haven't read it, um, it's a great gift idea uh, for someone you care about or just as a gift for yourself and maybe some time to read it this holiday season. Embarrassing as it is, I have started reading this book, 
but it's really a hard sort of reading for me. I have to say it's uh, it's a little bit it's not that I'm against academic writing, but it is academic, which which means it's uh, difficult to to get to get through. So I will certainly just uh, go and uh, check out the conversation just to at least understand what awaits me if I make it through the book to some later part. <laughs> yeah, and I think this concept of surveillance capitalism is something that's used and kind of mentioned um, in, in social media and in this contemporary conversation really a lot, but there's often lacks kind of an understanding around it because it does touch on so many aspects, especially of tech and how we do business today. So I think having a really, I think each of us in this industry has somewhat of an obligation um, to understand where that comes from. I mean, if you buy it or not, um, that's that's up to you, but certainly should know um, where where that position is coming from and why I think is very important for all of us, especially because it is something that is part of our world so um, fundamentally these days. Yeah, I think it has become one of the must reads uh, for sure in the industry is just indeed it's one of the fundamentals it's mentioned everywhere and i do feel bad when i realize that okay all the people around me have read it and i have not so i will i will definitely fix it and i hope the listeners will fix it too <laughs> now this is it for today's podcast i need to still get some time to read today so i hope you enjoyed uh, what we talked about today and if you did do tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu if you are not a subscriber yet subscribe today on your favorite podcast app Audio engineering for this podcast is done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at Andri at TechEU and Natalie at TechEU. Natalie, thank you so much for joining today. Thanks for having me, Andri. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your week and talk to you this Friday uh, with uh, the next interview special episode from Slush. Bye-bye. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh,